0: Forgotten Classics,
1: where a good story never goes out of style. Happy New Year, everyone. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 243 of Forgotten Classics, where we are beginning a pulp fiction forgotten classic, Warrior Queen of Mars, by Alexander Blade. I don't have a podcast highlight, but we do have a pretty good chunk of this story which may come out in one more episode or may come out in two. It depends on my time and my estimation of how long this baby is. Because, we, you know, it came out in Fantastic Adventures. It's got pictures and, you know, stuff like that taking up space. We get it courtesy of Jesse at SFF Audio, who kindly provided it when he heard that Ken in Hawaii, our longtime listener, wanted something like the green girl which I read some time ago, and which I'll put a link to for anybody who wants some more pulpy goodness. This story is perfectly appropriate because it's winter, and a lot of it's set in Iceland. It's pulp goodness, which, you know, we love that around here. And it is really inspiring me because as I'm reading it, I'm enjoying it so much that I think I might make the next story an H. Rider Haggard book, People of the Mist. Oh, yeah, just like H. Rider Haggard always is. Some horribly racist stuff in there, but oh, the adventure goodness of it. We are going to have a great time. And this story is a perfect appetizer to it. So let's settle back. Let's get the new year started right with a fantastic adventure It's been a while. Dive in, and I'll meet you on the other side. The Warrior Queen of Mars by Alexander Blade The doctor's name was Foster. If he had a first name or even initials, no one could remember them. He was called Dr. Foster. He signed his prescriptions with an almost illegible foster, He was so busy no one could gain his attention for more than a brief three or four seconds without being so ill that finding out his first name was farthest from their thoughts. On top of that, he was old, in a well-preserved, wiry, ageless sort of way. He had been looking sixty for all of the twenty-some years he had been practicing in Reykjavik, which isn't on Mars, but is the biggest city in Iceland the woman lying unconscious in the snow appeared to be about twenty-one or two years old. Not that the doctor was interested in how old she was, and all she was wearing were some fur panties and a translucent pearl-blue bra that seemed to be made of a flexible plastic. Dr. Foster braked his motor sled to a halt just beside her so that all he had to do was prepare a space for the unconscious form and lift it in. He marveled at the perfection of her figure, and especially her face. She was definitely out of place anywhere outside of Hollywood. And though the doctor didn't waste time on such an idle pursuit as measuring her height, one corner of his mind guessed she must be about six foot four inches. He tossed furs over her and started up again. The place he had been going was still the nearest habitation, so he continued toward it. It was a type of dwelling that would have been called a hodan in southwest United States. Its walls and roof were a mixture of stone and dirt. To look at it, one wouldn't think so, however, because its occupants had taken snow and plastered it thickly over it for added insulation. So it looked more like an igloo. A very large igloo. The owner came out indolently as Dr. Foster drew up before the entrance. He wore layers of furs, looking like a very filthy rag doll with a handful of hair for a beard pasted where the face ought to be. Give me a hand, Lars, Dr. Foster ordered, uncovering the woman. There was an audible gasp of surprise and wonder from Lars's unkempt beard. The doctor wasn't listening. His eyes were fixed on the unmelted snow still adhering to the flawless pink skin. She dead? Lars asked. I... "'It looks like she might be,' Dr. Foster said. He pulled off a glove and searched for a pulse with expert fingers. "'No, there's a heartbeat. Help me get her inside.' If Lars was more willing to help carry the woman than he would normally have been to do anything, it merely indicated that somewhere inside him was still a recognition and appreciation of the finer things of life. Lars' wife took over officially when they had staggered under their load into the stuffy, gloomy interior of the hodan. With flat-footed stoic motions, she produced a pan of cold water and a surprisingly clean rag and started gently massaging the flawless pink skin while Lars watched with round eyes and Dr. Foster with a professional frown. Wipe her dry, Dr. Foster ordered quietly after ten minutes of this. Lars' wife did so. By the time she had finished, the skin seemed to be damp again. The doctor bent down to look closer. His frown deepened. The moisture was obviously perspiration. While Lars and his wife stood silent, waiting for the doctor to tell them what to do, Dr. Foster went out to the sled and returned with his black bag. From it he took a thermometer, which he shook down and inserted under the unconscious woman's tongue. While he waited, he used his stethoscope. His face was expressionless. When he looked at the thermometer three minutes later, he frowned. He had shaken the thermometer down to 68 degrees. It was still at that point. Still frowning, he searched in his black bag and brought out a laboratory thermometer he carried for measuring the temperature of hot water. It was 10 inches long, with the gradations etched in it. He inserted it between the lax lips and held it upright with his hand, watching the top of the mercury column. Five minutes later, he was still looking at it, a glazed look in his eyes. The thermometer registered thirty one degrees, and the delicate pink skin was bathed with moisture. Thin trickles and rivulets of moisture laced the flat stomach. Finally, Dr. Foster sighed deeply, like one awakening from a dream, and drew the thermometer out. He put it away in his black case. He stood up and looked down at the six feet four of female perfection. Suddenly, he bent over and touched the skin of the solar plexus with his tongue. With a grunt of satisfaction, he straightened, licking his lips. That perspiration was almost, if not entirely, pure grain alcohol. The man was bundled up, so that with his huge goggles there was barely a total of two square inches of his skin showing, but no one around him would have noticed anyway, in all probability, since everyone was concerned with his or her own thoughts, "'preparing to board the huge four-motor plane "'on the concrete strip just outside the waiting room. "'The man merged with the crowd around the gate. "'When he was surrounded by people, "'he took something out of his pocket. "'It was a can of the type that generally carried DDT for spraying, "'with a small valve in one end "'that would spray when the button on it was pressed down. "'He did just that as he shoved gently through the crowd toward the gate. "'Nothing seemed to happen.' nor did the man seem to be expecting anything to happen. Finally, he stood near the guard at the gate. His movements seemed to be slightly impatient now. He squirted at the guard, waited for several seconds, then boldly walked past the guard onto the field toward the plane. One of the mechanics refueling the plane glanced up at him, and then returned to his work. It was the job of the gate guard to prevent anyone from going to the plane ahead of time unless they were supposed to— and the guard was standing at the gate without making any attempt to call the man back, so it must be all right. The bundled-up man walked up the ramp without being stopped. He paused at the door of the plane, looked around, his large glasses winking owlishly in the feeble sunlight, then stuck his hand inside the plane and squirted some of the contents of the can in there. A moment later he stepped in the plane. There were two stewardesses standing in the aisle, They were looking at him as he stepped in, but they neither smiled nor gave any other indication of being aware of his presence. He walked around them, being careful not to touch them, and walked up toward the front of the plane. Two-thirds of the way up to the door leading to the pilot compartment, the man stopped. The seats here were made up of four individual seats connected together, making one long seat at least seven feet wide. The man got down on the floor, and carefully rolled under the seat. There was just room enough for him to do so. He twisted his head around, apparently making sure he wasn't too noticeable. There was just room for him to maneuver one of his arms. He put the spray can in the pocket of his fur coat, took off one fur glove by pulling on it with his teeth, reached into an inside pocket, and brought out something that looked like a small capsule, popped that into his mouth, worked his glove back on, straightened out his body, and turned over on his stomach and pulled one arm up as a cushion for his head. He swallowed loudly once, apparently finding it difficult to swallow the capsule without a drink. After that, he didn't move. The passengers boarded the plane, occupying every seat. The foot of one of them kicked against him. Its owner bent down and saw nothing but a pile of inert furs, and straightened up, his curiosity satisfied. The plane took off. The two stewardesses went about their business of checking the passengers without apparently seeing him. In fact, they would have had to get down on hands and knees to see him through the forest of legs that concealed him. It landed at LaGuardia Field. The passengers all got off. After a while, the pilot and co-pilot and two stewardesses left the plane. A tractor hooked on and dragged it into a large hangar for going over before its return trip. Two janitors entered the passenger part of the ship and began up at the pilot's compartment working slowly. The man under the seats lifted his head, listened for a moment, then rolled out from under the seats and sat up cautiously. He didn't lift his head far enough so that the janitors could see him if they chanced to be looking that way. Instead, he brought out the can and did some spraying. When he stood up, the two janitors were standing where they had been at work, apparently deep in thought. They seemed not to notice the man when he rose and calmly walked down the aisle and left the ship still wearing his furs. It was dark outside the hangar. The sky was high and very blue, dotted with twinkling stars. There was no snow on the ground, but it was far from warm. The man walked along the edge of the runway strip from the hangar to a side gate. There was a small shack there. As he approached the shack, a guard came out. The guard opened his mouth to make some comment. The man sprayed the guard from the can he was holding in his hand. The guard's mouth remained open as though he had forgotten it. He seemed to be looking across the field, lost in thought as the man in furs opened the gate and walked out. He stood at the curb, apparently waiting for someone, without looking back at the guard who remained staring off across the field. A low-slung black sedan that had been parked next to the curb a block away started up gained speed, then pulled to a stop in front of the man in furs. He opened the front door of the car and climbed in. As the car pulled away, the guard seemed to come to life. He closed his mouth. His eyes looked where the man in furs had been standing when he squirted him. He blinked his eyes several times, licked his lips nervously, and went back in the shack. The black sedan sped across town to an apartment building just off Fifth Avenue. The man in furs got out alone. He entered the building as the sedan drove off. Inside were four people, just coming out of the elevator. They opened their eyes and their mouths simultaneously in astonishment. He calmly squirted them, then stepped past them into the elevator, pushed the button for the fifth floor. The elevator door closed, with the four people still standing where they had been. On the fifth floor, he pushed the elevator button for the third floor and stepped out before the door closed. The hall was deserted. He went to the nearest door and, using a key, opened it and entered. Turning on the light, he began divesting himself of his furs without even a glance around, as though it were his own apartment and he had left it only a short time before. With the furs and goggles off, he was revealed as a rather muscular young man with a high intelligent forehead, wide mouth. Black hair combed straight back, and an expensive suit that looked like it had been slept in. He carried the furs into the bedroom, hastily completed his disrobing, and dived under the shower. Ten minutes later, with fresh clothing on and a shave, he lit a cigarette and sat down at the desk in the living room. He picked up the phone and dialed a number, his cigarette dangling from lazy lips. The phone at the other end didn't complete its first ring. A voice barked, "'Hello?' So loudly, the young man winced. Kurt Widner, the young man said, just got in ten minutes ago. What'd you find? The voice at the other end barked. If I told you, you'd think I was crazy like we thought Mosley was, Widner said, his grin moving his cigarette to the side of his face. You mean he was sane? The voice at the other end said incredulously. The young man was holding the receiver away from his ear to protect it. "'Perfectly, Mr. Raines,' he said. Dr. Foster, his breath forming a cloud of steam each time he exhaled, squatted by the sled and watched the woman, or girl. It was hard for him to think of a well-formed girl, six feet four inches tall. Her breast rose and fell rhythmically in sleep or unconsciousness, It was really a combination of both, so far as he could make out. She didn't seem to be drugged. At least, she exhibited none of the usual symptoms of being drugged, except that she wouldn't awaken. His examination had revealed no sign of injury, but it had brought out some rather interesting facts. Her eyes were purple with tawny orange stars, but were normal in shape. Her fingernails and toes were paper thin, and the skin under them was a bright red. Her hair was a rich brown in color, and so fine that it seemed to be strands of pure silk rather than hair. He had moved her back out into the freezing air because she had begun to show signs of real discomfort in the warmth of the hoden. With air that would have frozen a normal skin blowing on her from the slight breeze, she seemed to relax in comfort. And since she seemed to breathe normally, he was forced to conclude that for some reason her temperature of one degree below freezing was normal to her. It shocked his scientific mind, but he was forced to accept facts as they were. He wished he had a portable laboratory handy to make blood tests, a microscope to make detailed examinations, but he had nothing except his bag of ordinary diagnostic tools and an assortment of sulfas and shots. All he could do was wait until she recovered consciousness. The sun had set hours ago, and a bloated moon hung low on the southern horizon when it finally penetrated that perhaps he had something more than just a medical curiosity on his hands. He had coordinated the fact of the woman's perspiration being largely alcohol with the fact that not even an alcoholic can absorb enough to sweat it out in pure form. He had coordinated the fact that she was alive with a body temperature of one degree below freezing with the fact that no human being could remain alive, let alone perspire at that temperature. Now, suddenly, the realization struck him that this meant that the unconscious woman wasn't Icelandic, American, English, nor any other race of people. He examined her features more closely. He pulled back an eyelid again and studied her eye. It was possible that changing from a water metabolism to an alcohol metabolism could produce the unusual color and shape of the iris and the paper-thin fingernails and toenails. But body cells couldn't just change in such a basic thing in one generation. As he looked at her and thought about these things, the realization grew on him that, human though she might be in form, she was farther from the human of known races than any animal was she from some other planet? Dr. Foster looked speculatively up at the sky as though he might find the answer there. Then he let his eyes drop to his more immediate surroundings, and slowly surveyed the bleak expanse of snow-covered wasteland that stretched to the horizon in all directions, to the uninviting canyons that cut into the mountain that rose in the back of the Hoden. There was no movement visible on that white panorama, "'except the almost iridescent swirl of fine snow "'caught up by the night wind here and there. "'Nodding to himself as if he had reached some conclusion, "'he took off his heavy gloves "'and extracted a prescription pad and a pencil "'from somewhere within the depths of his thick coat. "'He wrote slowly, "'stopping often to ponder what he had written. "'When he finished, he stood up and went inside the Hoden. "'Charlie,' he said, shaking the sleeping male inhabitant, "'Huh?' Charlie said, turning over and blinking up at him. "'Get up, Charlie,' Dr. Foster said. "'I want you to take a message into Reykjavik "'and give it to the telegraph man at the airport.' "'Without protest or question, Charlie rolled over and got up. "'He took the piece of paper and carefully put it in a pocket "'and then dropped an enormous fur parka "'onto his already overloaded shoulders. "'The snowshoes he strapped to his back "'were not for the journey on the hard-packed snow,' but were taken in case it snowed before he got back. He left without glancing at his wife, who was watching from her own pile of furs without moving. Dr. Foster followed him out and resumed his vigil, now and then looking in the direction Charlie had gone and following his progress until he disappeared from view. Dr. Thomas S. Farmer was considered the world's foremost biochemist. The list of his discoveries in medicine read like the pharmaceutical catalog and took up a good part of it. He was the world's greatest experimental ornithologist. He had discovered five types of insect blood and had isolated and cataloged the components of each type. He was considered one of the greatest mathematicians in the world, having discovered the basic fallacy of the earliest 20th century infinity theory and redefining the mathematical point to eliminate that fallacy. He was listed as one of the three greatest physicists, having advanced the theory that the mean density of stars would remain a constant no matter how far larger and larger telescopes penetrated space a theory that had come to be generally accepted recently. He was a leading authority on education, having formulated an educational program for primary schools, which would actually increase intelligence and alter aptitudes. Anyone in the world who cared to send $10 to Lloyd's of London and receive by return mail a nicely engraved certificate entitling him to a $1,000 in cash if Dr. Farmer died within 12 months from date of purchase. It had become a popular international lottery, and of the 30 to $100 million dollars Lloyds made on it each year, they handed 10% directly over to the doctor. This was very unusual, since Dr. Farmer was already well over a 100 years of age and therefore should have been considered out of bounds for insurance companies. <laughs> Legally dead, so to speak but it was no more unusual than his appearance, which was that of a man of perhaps twenty-eight years of age. This in itself did not seem unusual unless one knew who the apparently young man was, and since most people recognized him at once when he appeared in public, he very seldom appeared in public, or so the public was led to believe." His secretary and errand boy, a man somewhat older in appearance with a squarer jaw and darker complexion, was something different. No one paid much attention to him. Reporters had found that anything he said would almost certainly later be denied by Dr. Farmer himself. Officials and businessmen had found that any messages they sent through him to the doctor generally didn't reach that famous man. So... Jack Tracy had come to be totally ignored by everyone except as a curiosity. And no one, except a very few, very important people, knew that Jack Tracy and Dr. Thomas S. Farmer were one and the same man. If the messenger boy who brought the telegram to Dr. Farmer's New Jersey country estate had known of Jack Tracy's reputation for unreliability he would have insisted on seeing the doctor in person before relinquishing the yellow envelope. If he had seen Jack Tracy rip the envelope open the minute the door was closed, he would have been even more doubtful. But before his motor tricycle found a break in traffic so it could scoot onto the highway and head back to town, Jack Tracy had connected with the airport and made a reservation on the next plane for Reykjavik under the name of Frank Bond. As Frank Bond, he had an apartment in Greenwich Village and a reputation of seldom being home. Also as Frank Bond, he had a reputation of being a fairly prolific writer of mysteries that were consistently good. After he had made the reservation and learned his plane would leave in six hours, he called the telegraph office in Newark and sent a reply, informing Dr. Foster that he was sending a thoroughly capable man, Frank Bond, to investigate. That done, he repaired to his makeup room behind the bookcase in his bedroom and spent half an hour transforming himself into Frank Bond. As Frank, he was an inch taller, which makes a difference when you are five foot eight and considerably more muscular in build. His hair, normally parted and loosely combed, was still the same shade of gray, but combed straight back and plastered down. His clothes were in better taste and more expensive than those usually seen on Dr. Farmer. His teeth were whiter and slightly irregular. He had crossed to the bedroom and entered the spacious front room when the doorbell rang again. Hesitating only for the barest instant, he went to answer it. Is Dr. Farmer in? One of the three men standing outside asked politely. Why, no, Frank Bond said, his eyes flicking over the three men and growing uneasy. He left just a few moments ago. "'Who are you?' the man asked, pushing past him and entering the house. The other two men followed with that air of confident insolence posed by a man who habitually gains his courage from a gun. "'I'm Frank Bond,' the disguised Dr. Farmer said, assuming an air of mystification. "'I gather you're friends of the doctor. He was called to Iceland, I believe, on some extremely urgent business and is catching the next plane.' If it's important, I think you can catch him at the LaGuardia Airport if you hurry. The three men grinned at him wolfishly. Thanks. It is urgent, the spokesman said. I'll call the airport and have him paged, Frank Bond said as the men hurried out the door. Do that, one of them said over his shoulder. Dr. Farmer, disguised as Frank Bond, watched them as they got in the low-slung black sedan and sped recklessly down the driveway. Then he went to the phone and called, not LaGuardia, but the Newark airport. When he hung up, he was smiling his satisfaction. In half an hour, he would be taking off for Iceland in a chartered plane. Frank Bond, the writer, landed at the Reykjavik airport four hours ahead of the plane he had wired that he was arriving on. Consequently, he wasn't surprised that there was no one there to meet him. With four hours to kill, he decided to do a little scouting around. Before he had walked across the waiting room of the airport to the newsstand, he became aware of something. Some sort of joke was extremely popular, having infinite variations that were being tossed around on all sides. The gist of the humor seemed to center around the little man who wasn't there. He bought the local paper and went into the coffee shop and sat down at the counter. He had slept during the later part of the trip over the Atlantic, so he ordered a breakfast of ham and eggs and coffee. Then he opened the paper. The headlines captured his immediate interest. They read, "'Mystery of Disappearing Man Grows.' A full double column told of the developments in the mystery, beginning with the latest development." The account of a guard at a side gate at Laguardia Field, who claimed that a man answering the description of the reports from Iceland had approached his gate shortly after the plane from Sweden had been taken into a hangar for checkup. I noticed that he was dressed unusually," the guard said, "but I didn't think anything about it. I stepped out of my shack to inform him that only known employees were allowed to use my gate. Suddenly. He seemed to vanish before my merry eyes. I blinked, and he was gone. I turned around quickly. I could see fifty yards in every direction, but he wasn't in sight. I would have kept quiet about it, but he answered the description published in these other reports exactly, so I know I wasn't seeing things. The account went on to tell of the previous appearances of the mysterious man who was bundled up in furs and wore goggles. His first known appearance was at the Reykjavik airport, but the reporter who wrote the article predicted that accounts of him being seen in Sweden would turn up, and that he was probably a Ceresian spy or refugee going to the United States without passport. The reporter made no attempt to solve the mystery of how the man had managed to disappear so many times, and while so many different people were looking directly at him. Dr. Farmer read the newspaper account carefully several times while he ate slowly. He disagreed with the reporter on where the mysterious little man who wasn't there originated, but he did so with the conviction that he had more to go on. What did he have to go on? He took the telegram out of his pocket and read it for the hundredth time. It read Have discovered extraterrestrial human female with C3H8O3 metabolism. Urgent. Danger. Ask at window for Charlie. Reply time of arrival. That gave no hint of any connection with the man who wasn't there, but it seemed a certainty there must be a definite connection. There were the three strangers who had arrived shortly after the telegraph boy. They, too, were almost certainly connected with the other two facets of this budding mystery. There was a radio playing softly at the far end of the coffee shop. The music was suddenly interrupted by a male voice. We interrupt this program to bring you the latest bulletin. The plane that was due to arrive at the Reykjavik airport in a little over three hours has not made its scheduled flight report. That report is ten minutes overdue. The airport radio operator has not been able to get a response to his call signals from the plane. There is, as yet, no cause for alarm. A report was just handed to me. The USS Nielsen just radioed that an explosion took place high in the stratosphere and several miles north of the ship 15 minutes ago. The position of the USS Nielsen is approximately that of the plane, so it is possible that what they saw was an explosion on the plane itself the ship has turned off its course to investigate. We will bring you whatever message its Skipper sends as soon as it is received. Tom Farmer crumpled his newspaper. He dropped a dollar bill on the counter and left the coffee shop, noting the white faces around him and compressing his lips grimly. So, they planted a bomb to kill me and prevent me from getting here, he said in his thoughts. At least seventy five people on the off chance that I was among them in some disguise. The atmosphere of jocularity that had been in the waiting room was gone. People stood around in quiet groups. Tom went to the ticket window and asked the way to the telegraph office. He learned that there were two, one in the same building and one in town. There were half a dozen taxis outside. He got into the first one in line and gave the driver orders to go to the telegraph office in Reykjavik. As his cab pulled away from the airport building, he twisted around and looked through the rear window. He saw two men getting into the second taxi. He frowned. It could mean nothing, or it could mean they intended to follow him. Did he want that yet? He studied the problem. What he wanted to do, if possible, was get in touch with Charlie before the time the plane was supposed to arrive. At the telegraph office, he might get a description of the man so he could identify him when he ran across him. He looked back. The taxi was still following, but it would have to anyway, since there was no other road as yet. He settled back, deciding to let things take their course. Ten minutes later, when he got out at the telegraph office, the other cab was not in sight. The man behind the counter at the telegraph office was in his late thirties, of Danish or Scandinavian descent. When Tom Farmer entered, the man laid his pipe carefully on the ashtray on his sending desk and came to the counter. "'I'm looking for a man named Charlie,' Tom said. He sent a telegram several hours ago and received a reply. The smile on the operator's face vanished abruptly. "'You're the second man asking for Charlie,' he said. I wish now I hadn't given the first one his description. Who are you? "'Frank Bond,' Tom said. The operator looked at him keenly, then seemed to make up his mind. "'Charlie is a back-hills character,' he said. "'There aren't many of them. You won't have any trouble finding him. He has a beard that's never been washed or combed and will be so bundled up in moth-eaten furs that you can see nothing except the furs and beard.' He has a mud and rock sty about fifteen miles due north of town in the foothills. "'How much did you tell the other man who asked about him?' Tom asked. "'The same, Dr. Farmer,' the operator said quietly. "'I wish I hadn't. And don't try to deny that you're Dr. Farmer. Your disguise would fool most people, but the shape of your ears and your eyes give you away to me.' "'Okay,' Tom said, sighing. It might be wise if someone knows. There seems to be something going on that has a great deal of danger connected with it. He sketched the events he knew of. The operator nodded gravely as Tom spoke. "'I've been thinking some about that telegram Charlie sent myself,' he said. "'By the way, my name's Nels Larson.' He shook hands gravely with Tom. "'The way I see it,' he said going to his desk and picking up his pipe— is that some Martians or something have landed somewhere on Iceland, and they got into the wrong hands. That girl Dr. Foster has is one of the visitors. The little man who wasn't there may be one, but I think he's one of the gang that found them, and he just used one of their things to make it easier for him to get back to the States and get reinforcements, and maybe financial backing. There would be millions in it for unscrupulous people.' Scientific devices the world had never heard of, hundreds of patents could be obtained. They could even patent the spaceship and control space travel with their patents. The only way they can do that is to keep it secret that a Martian spaceship had really landed. Maybe you're right, nels Tom said, certainly, there must be millions of dollars at stake for even an utterly unscrupulous group to deliberately kill seventy or more people just to get at me as they did if they blew up that plane. He took out a cigarette and lit it thoughtfully. "'I may be running into real trouble,' he went on. "'Here's what I want you to do. Keep everything quiet for three days. If I'm not in here in that time, notify the police and also send this wire to the State Department at Washington.' He wrote hastily on a telegraph blank. When he finished, he handed it to Nels. "'Put it in your safe and keep it locked,' he said." I think someone was able to come in and read the telegram Charlie sent under your very eyes without you knowing. Huh? Nels exclaimed. If the little man who wasn't there could vanish right in front of people's eyes, Tom said, maybe he could remain invisible while he came in and read the telegrams on your spindle. Maybe you're right, Nels said gloomily. He looked around half fearfully, picked up the written telegram, and went to the open safe and put it in a locked drawer. When he came back to the counter, his mood changed. "'There's something I've always wanted to find out,' he said. "'Does diet have anything to do with your experiment on immortality?' "'I know you refuse to give out any information until you either die "'or reach the age of a 150 in good health, "'so you can be sure no harmful effects develop.' "'but I thought maybe you could give out a little information "'that maybe would keep me going strong a few extra years.' "'No,' Tom Farmer said, his voice kindly. "'Diet has little or nothing to do with it. "'It's an extremely delicate balance of chemicals "'that do specific things to the body. "'The main ones are harmful by themselves, "'so I can't just pass out part of the thing. "'It has to be all or none, so it will have to be none.' "'I expected as much,' Nels said, sighing. But there was no harm in trying. He grinned sourly. Maybe you'd better hope that immortality stuff prevents your death by accident, too. Sorry, Tom said, grinning broadly. I'm as vulnerable to a bullet as you are. He returned to his waiting cab and ordered the driver to go back to the airport. That would be the best place to start looking for Charlie. As the cab left the thickly settled part of Reykjavik, Tom remembered the two men and the cab. He twisted and looked back down the narrow, snow-covered highway. Two blocks back was a cab. It might be the two men following him, or it might be merely a routine cab trip not connected with him. There was no way of finding out. At the airport, he paid the cab driver and went inside, stopping just inside the door to wait for the other cab to arrive. A moment later it pulled up. A man climbed out. He wasn't either of the two who had climbed into a cab when he left the airport. He was carrying what seemed to be a can wrapped in paper. The can had apparently been rolled up in the paper and the ends bent over loosely. He held it gripped in his fingers, with one finger holding down the folds of the wrapping paper on one end. The man wore goggles. They were the type many people wore in the North in the winter. There was nothing unusual about them, nor about the man himself. Tom Farmer left the doorway and circled about the waiting room, looking for Charlie. He found him almost at once, sitting sound asleep on a bench. He shook him gently. Are you Charlie? he asked. Sure, was the matter-of-fact answer. I'm Frank Bond, Tom said. Charlie stood up, fully awake. Come, he ordered. He headed toward the exit with the peculiar stride men who walk great distances assume. Tom glanced around the waiting room. The man who had just arrived in the cab was at the ticket window talking to the agent. Other people were standing about, numbed expressions on their faces. Evidently positive confirmation of the planes being wrecked hadn't come in yet. Before Tom and Charlie reached the exit, four men suddenly came to life and hurried out. When Tom got outside, two of the men had entered cabs alone, and the other two had entered the third cab. That left only the cab that had followed him out from Reykjavik. Tom's eyes narrowed in suspicion. The other three cabs were in motion. The other cab pulled forward, even with him and Charlie. The driver reached back and opened the door. Charlie was climbing in without waiting. "'Pardon me, but could I ride back to town with you?' A polite voice asked. Tom turned his head. It was the man with the wrapped can. Tom blinked his eyes, then blinked them again in amazement. Instead of standing by the cab, he was comfortably seated in it, and it was already nearing the city limits. Charlie was wedged against him. The man with the can was next to Charlie. The cab driver turned his head and glanced at him. He's awake, he said. "'Tom jerked his eyes to the man on the other side of Charlie. "'He saw the wrapped can start to rise. "'He closed his eyes. "'When nothing happened, he opened them again. "'The cab was speeding along a residential street. "'Tom closed his eyes quickly. "'The driver had been busy with traffic and hadn't seen him. "'Through slitted lids, he looked sideways at the man with the can. "'It was obvious now that whatever caused the lapse of consciousness "'was contained in that innocent-appearing can.' It was squirted out like DDT is sprayed. Did it act through the eyes exclusively, or were the goggles merely an added precaution? The cab was slowing down. The driver was in on this thing, too, and they were nearing their destination. It could be the large white house just ahead. There was no time to lose. Tom lunged suddenly. His fingers closed about the can. He jerked and felt it come free without thinking. He swung the can against the man's head and felt it connect. He saw him start to slump and turned his attention to the driver. The driver had stepped on the gas. Now he was frantically trying to turn the cab into the driveway of the White House. Tom hit him on the back of the head with the end of the can. The driver tried to avoid the blow. In trying to avoid it, he let the car straighten out. It skidded briefly, then crashed sideways into a light pole on the curb at the side of the driveway. Tom was cushioned by Charlie and the stranger. He opened the door and half-dragged Charlie out. Charlie stood up when his feet touched the ground. He stood passively, his eyes staring straight ahead. He was still in that mysterious blankness. Tentatively, Tom started to lead him along the sidewalk. Charlie's feet moved obediently. "'Run!' Tom ordered, pulling on Charlie's hand. Charlie began to run in a clodding shuffle." Tom ran along beside him, guiding him. He put the mysterious can in his coat pocket. At the corner he stole a quick look back at the scene of the wreck. There were several men there. One had a gun out, and another was apparently arguing with him. Charlie stumbled and fell with a surprised exclamation. He had recovered consciousness. Tom smiled at the realization that apparently an instant ago to Charlie he had been in the car. He had blinked his eyes to find himself running on the sidewalk. "'Get up, Charlie,' he said. "'We've got to run for it.' He saw Charlie shake his head and look back the way they had come. There was the sound of a shot. At the same instant, the snow kicked up several yards away on the sidewalk. Charlie needed no more coaxing. It took half an hour for Tom and Charlie to reach the outskirts of town. They traveled on foot. After it became certain that they had shaken off pursuit, Charlie had insisted it was his job to take Frank Bond to Dr. Foster and the woman, and wouldn't listen to anything else. He had shaken his head violently to Tom's suggestion that they get help from the Reykjavik police. "'No,' he said. "'Dr. Foster said to bring you. I bring you. No monkey business.' That seemed to be a favorite phrase of the man behind the most unkempt beard in the world. He repeated it, savoring its flavor. No monkey business. So Tom let him have his head and managed to always remain half a step behind his guide, so that Charlie had to turn his head to see him. As he hurried along, taking three steps to Charlie's, two, he studied the man. When they reached open country and no one was in sight for the mile or two to the horizon in every direction, Tom took the can out of his pocket carefully. His fingers explored the valve under the paper until he was sure he knew which way it would spray. At an opportune moment, he pointed it so that the spray would shoot ahead of Charlie and pressed down briefly. Nothing seemed to happen. Charlie kept walking. Tom increased his pace until he could see the man's eyes. They were blank. Breathing a sigh of relief, Tom put out his hand and stopped him. Then, hooking his fingers in the dirty beard, he pulled. The beard came loose. The face that was revealed was rather square-cut, the chin strong. It was the face of a Georgian, a white Russian. It was clean-shaven. Tom nodded in satisfaction. He had noted little things that made him feel Charlie was not what he appeared to be. His beard had been unkempt but his eyebrows had been trimmed. He wore filthy rags under his moth-eaten fur parka, but there was a smell of talcum and shave lotion around him. Thoughtfully, Tom replaced the beard and started the man to walking again. After a few moments, the supposed Charlie turned and glanced at him suspiciously, but said nothing. Tom smiled to himself. The spray was strange stuff. It blanked out consciousness so subtly it was difficult to be sure. It was a potent weapon. It was nearly five hours before they topped a slight rise and the sled with Dr. Foster standing beside it came into view. It was really Dr. Foster. Tom remembered him. He had met him thirty or forty years before in New York at a meeting of the AMA. Dr. Foster started toward them the moment they came into view. He met them a hundred yards from the shed and the ghostly mound that was the Hoden. "'Dr. Farmer!' Dr. Foster exclaimed. "'I'm glad you could come.' "'I'm sorry, Dr. Foster, but I'm not Dr. Farmer,' Tom said, winking at the doctor so that Charlie couldn't see him do it. "'I'm Frank Bond, a friend of Farmer's. He was busy and sent me.' "'Oh, that's too bad,' Dr. Foster said, frowning, but indicating by his manner that he had caught the wink and would play along. "'Has Charlie told you about the woman?' "'No,' Charlie muttered. He turned his face away and went on toward the hoden, leaving the two doctors alone. "'What's wrong?' Dr. Foster asked in a low voice. "'I wish I knew, doctor,' Tom said gravely. "'There isn't time to go into it now. Show me what you've found.' The supposed Charlie had gone into the hoden. Dr. Foster led the way to the sled. But when Tom caught a glimpse of the figure lying there, he increased his steps. He thought he saw the woman's eyes flash open for an instant, but couldn't be sure. When he knelt over her, she seemed to be unconscious. He pulled back an eyelid. The eye remained unmoving. It was a very unusual eye in every respect. At one time, Tom had made a study of iris patterns, not only of all races of humans, but of many animals. It had been a lengthy study. It was possible to tell whether a person had been drinking from their eyes. It was possible to tell whether even a 64th mixture of some race was present in the owners of the eyes. It was generally possible to tell the nationality of a person by his eyes. Whether Dr. Foster knew any of this or not, he had been right. The beautiful Amazon, judging from her eyes alone, was not a member of any race of earth. She was human, yes but so far removed from earth races that she was of an unknown race. Tom let the lid close, marveling at the girl's self-control if she were conscious. He was beginning to doubt that he had actually seen her open her eyes to look at him. He let his eyes roam over her perfect figure with its flawless skin of delicate pink, and felt his heart quicken its beat and his breath come faster. He swallowed loudly in the frozen soundless hush that hung over things. Then, taking the can out of his pocket, he squirted a fine spray of its contents into her face. "'What was that?' Dr. Foster asked, curiously. "'I'll tell you later,' Tom said. "'Right now I want to bind her hands and feet together. It wouldn't do for her to recover consciousness and suddenly get up and run away. Judging from her legs, she could outrun us easily.' "'You're right,' Dr. Foster said. "'I never thought of that.' I have just the things in the sled. Sometimes I have an unruly patient who objects to being taken care of. He rummaged through a pile of things in a box and brought out canvas straps. Tom hurriedly fastened them in place. He had used the barest minimum of the spray. Almost at once the girl opened her eyes. Anger flooded her face. Her lips opened as if to speak. Then— It was the strangest melody Tom had ever heard. Its notes were fluid, rich, and staccato as those of a piano. They coursed over three octaves of soprano, each note blending with the next. So rapid did they succeed one another in musical tones. It was speech, in a way, as though the notes of an electric organ had been attached to the keys of a typewriter, each note being sounded by a letter of the alphabet as a rapid typist copied the pages of a book. There was no slightest enunciation, just pure and incredibly rich tones. Still emitting the rapid jumble of melody, she sat up, tossing her head imperiously, her nostrils flaring. Unsuspected muscles appeared under the smooth skin of her arms as she strained at her bonds. Tom watched her, speechless with admiration, her rich brown hair so fine in texture that it seemed a mere cloud was caught in the wind. She seemed to notice the admiration in his eyes suddenly. Her musical explosion stopped. She arched her head, smiling. She held out her bound wrists toward him, a pleading expression on her face. Tom felt his senses reel. She had excited emotions in him that he had thought were completely dead. Without thinking, he undid her wrist straps. She was nodding her head happily and speaking in her rapid-fire melody of pure tones, it was unbelievable, beautiful beyond description. The spell of her voice was shattered more abruptly and more completely than the breaking of a glass by a harsh voice. Don't move, any of you, it said. Tom, Dr. Foster, and the girl turned their heads slowly in the direction of the sound. It was Charlie, standing just outside the hoden, a repeater rifle to his shoulder. Beside him, a malicious smile on her lips stood Charlie's wife. "'Don't you know that isn't your husband?' Tom said to her. "'I know,' she said. "'But he's promised me riches so I can go to America and live. That is better than Charlie!' Tom stole a glance at the girl. Her eyes held a puzzled frown. She was studying Charlie and seemed to be trying to understand his words." Charlie looked past them toward the distant rise that was the horizon. From his beard came a loud, shrill whistle. Tom dropped his hand and unfastened the buckle of the canvas belt that still held the girl's ankles. He kept his eyes on Charlie while he did so. When it was done and he had his hand elevated again, he stole a glance at her. She flashed him a knowing smile that made him short of breath. There were men coming toward them. They were on skis and were traveling swiftly. Tom counted them. There were ten of them. They turned their skis and used the edges to brake to a stop. It was then that Tom saw the small motors fastened to their backs with propellers. The motors, from their lack of sound, were the new gasoline turbines, miniature turbine weighing barely fifty pounds and capable of generating thirty horsepower. They were speaking to Charlie in a strange language from a familiar-sounding word here and there, Tom knew that it was Russian. His eyes widened as he recognized one of the men. He was a man that the new Russian government had offered rewards totaling over a million dollars for. He was the last of the old Stalinist government, the only one who had escaped. Tom felt a hand slipping into his pocket. The girl was stealthily taking the spray can out. Some of the Russians were stepping out of their skis and showing the intention of coming over to look at her. Tom fixed his eyes on the horizon and gave a muffled exclamation of surprise and pleasure. Startled, the men turned to see what he was looking at. Tom felt the can leave his pocket and smiled. "'What did you see?' the leader of the Russians asked. "'Nothing,' Tom said. The man walked up to him taking off a heavy glove. When he reached Tom, he suddenly slapped him viciously across the side of the face with it. Tom fell, dazed, landing on his hands and knees. He shook his head, trying to clear it. Something heavy fell on him, flattening him so that his face pressed momentarily into the snow. Dimly, he heard angry shouts. He pushed upward and felt something slide off his back. He rolled over and sat up. The girl was gone from the sled and in the distance he could see fast-moving figures in the snow, heading toward the northern skyline. It confused him for a moment. They couldn't have gone that far in such a short time. Then his eyes encountered the spray can and its paper wrapper lying by the sled, and he understood. He picked up the can and put it in his pocket. She had used it on the one who had slapped him with the glove, and chosen the moment of confusion to try to escape— She'd be caught quickly by the men on skis with motor-driven propellers on their backs. They would catch her and speed back. He would have to take advantage of every second while they were gone. Dr. Foster was lying on the snow unconscious. Tom examined him briefly and decided the old man had probably been knocked out rather than gassed with spray. He let him lie and quickly bound the Russian with the canvas straps he had used on the girl. That done, he went into the hodan. Charlie's wife was crumpled in a miserable heap on her bed of furs, sobbing heartbrokenly. The man who had masqueraded as Charlie wasn't there. Tom wasted no time inside. A brief glance around had shown him there were no weapons around. Charlie had probably owned just the one rifle, a basic necessity for survival. He hurried outside and lifted Dr. Foster into the sled and started the motor. "'The sled was undoubtedly much slower than the men on skis. "'There wasn't much hope of either catching up with them "'or of being able to accomplish anything single-handed if he did. "'He turned the sled about "'and headed back toward Reykjavik to get help, "'and as he drove, peering ahead "'until he was suffering from snow-blindness, "'the face and tawny eyes of the strange girl rose in his mind. "'Her melody speech rang in his ears. "'The thought came to him that he was falling in love with her.' he shook his head in emphatic denial. Her alcohol metabolism made her even more unattainable than her probable extraterrestrial origin and strange speech. But suddenly something clicked in his thoughts that made him suck in his breath sharply. It was his charts on his own metabolism. His experiment on immortality had been going on for 63 years now. Slowly over those years, his own body had been altering its processes. One of the major changes was the alcoholic content of his body. It had been increasing until now. It was greater than that a normal person could ever get and remain conscious. It was still less than 2%, but it was increasing at a rate that would bring it to better than 80% in a thousand years if the curve kept going up. The implications made him weak. It was impossible, of course. His thoughts brought several basic body elements to mind from his vast well of knowledge, Those elements weren't alcohol-soluble, nor could they form without ionization. The sound of a rifle report broke off his thoughts. He looked back and saw two skiers speeding toward him. They were still half a mile away. He turned back and pressed the throttle as far down as it would go. A moment later he rounded a curve and saw the edge of Reykjavik just ahead. It would be close. He cursed desperately. He heard a shouted command and looked back. The two skiers were a mere hundred yards away. One of them was sinking into a crouch to take careful aim with his rifle. Tom slid down as far as he could, so as to present as small a target as possible. There was the sound of another shot. With it came a dull thump from somewhere in the sled. It was followed by several shots in rapid succession, sounding more like pistols than rifle shots, and coming from ahead. He lifted his head enough to look. Several uniformed men were coming toward him on skis. It was the police. Now that is what I call eventful and otherworldly. I love the idea of a little spray can, and I don't know why it's always wrapped in paper. No labels, um, what's the point? (laughs) But I also really (laughs) love the way it starts off with, oh, who wouldn't stop for a woman in the snow wearing fur panties and a translucent bra? Who cares if she's six foot four? I notice everybody spends a certain amount of time examining her exquisite form, although the clothing is not described to us again. And I would like to say, I think it's very ingenious, this idea of someone who's really comfortable at freezing temperatures because their metabolic system evidently runs on pure alcohol or something like that. I just thought that was really a great twist. And then we've got Frank Bond, who's already well over 100 and accepting bets on how long he's going to live and doesn't even understand it himself. What an odd bird. Now, one thing I did notice was when I was proofing, when I was reading, I didn't notice it at all, which is really silly. At the beginning, they call the couple that's staying with the doctor, with Dr. Foster, Lars and Lars's wife. Suddenly, it's Charlie and Charlie's wife. Oops, copy editors missed one. Oops, author got confused. That cracked me up because I was listening and I was like, who the heck is Lars? Oh, wait, that beard description. That can only be the guy they're calling Charlie later on. So that really cracked me up a lot, too. Well, we've got the scene set for amazing adventures or as the magazine would say, fantastic adventures, because (laughs) this is a combination that is irresistible and it's just going to get better. I just want to say. I've been reading ahead a touch. You're going to enjoy this, if you like pulp fiction at all. So, we'll all be looking forward to next week and seeing what happens then. Now, other news is that at A Good Story is Hard to Find podcast, Scott and I discussed Muscle Shoals, the movie. Great documentary. If you want to watch it before we talk, that would be advised, because we tell all because that's part of the fun of the discussion, right? Also, in my own reading, I just thought I'd mention, I read Agatha Christie novels so much when I was, oh, I don't know, from the fourth grade on. And after a while, you know, you read and reread, and then you're like, I'll remember these forever, never mind. Well, lately, they've been having these various deals on the Kindle for, you know, $1.99, their daily deal, where every so often an Agatha Christie novel pops up. And so I thought, you know, if I saw a paperback for two bucks, that would be nothing. So I've gone ahead and gotten some of them. And I've been having the best time because I love her writing style. I love her sense of humor, which usually tweaks in there a bit. And it's just been a sheer pleasure to revisit these books, especially since I tend to remember the main plot twists. But quite often, the story goes on to something I've forgotten altogether, or there's another twist that I'd forgotten. So even at this late date, she's doing a great job in keeping me interested. And they're wonderful books just to read, I don't know, during stressful times or busy times, you don't have to put tons of thought into them, which is something that got mentioned, uh, probably in a foreword or something that I read somewhere, when they were talking about London during World War II, and everybody would have to go down to the air shelter spots all the time because the Germans were bombing. And the most popular books there were mysteries, because they would take your mind off everything and allow you to escape. Well, I'm not exactly going through a super stressful time, but I'm just really enjoying these books that don't really require a lot of me. We all have those times, right? So I definitely recommend and Agatha Christie, if you haven't read one for a while. I think you might be surprised at what you've forgotten. The other thing is that I've been trying some of the Audible samples, and also our library has CD sets of readings of the Agatha Christie books, and they are wonderfully suited to it. And it looks like the main narrator is Hugh Frazier, who's doing a really good job. I'm listening to The Secret of Chimneys right now, and He doesn't have to bust out an accent very often, but when he does, it's always so enjoyable. So those are my recommendations book-wise this week. It's cold here, though not what a lot of people would call cold. But you know, I'm ready for the temperatures to get out of the 20s and 30s. I'm just saying. That's enough winter. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, now start laughing and uh, throwing things at me, right? Everybody from further north. Football playoff season has started. So we're kind of catching a playoff here and there, and that's kind of fun since occasionally a team I'm thinking is good might win, unlike the way the Cowboys keep breaking my heart. So that's what I'm doing. I hope you're having a great time in your cold weather. And as always, I appreciate you coming by. I love reading to you, as you know. Have a great week, everyone, and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.